This episode is brought to you by the Women's Network. Have we learned a lot more than we knew in the past few hundred years? Of course, but can't anyone imagine that in a hundred years, people will look back at us now and laugh at how mm -hmm. archaic and cruel a lot of our approaches are? I think so. And I think that people who are artists, whether they physically talented at painting something or, or whether they're a poet or a writer or someone who sees the greater possibility than, than what is sitting right in front of them, which ultimately I think is the essence of what it means to be a creative or an artist, that they're going to be more successful in the realm of science. I think the two are inextricably linked. That's why we have STEAM now, right? Science, mm -hmm. technology, engineering, art, and mathematics. I think that is something that needs to be taught at all levels. Our guest on this episode is an incredibly multi-talented person who has demonstrated that it's not necessary to limit yourself only to niche interests in order to be successful. I'm excited to introduce Erin Sharoni, who has achieved remarkable success in many disciplines. A banker turned television host turned STEM researcher and entrepreneur, Erin is currently pursuing a master's in biology with a concentrated interest in longevity. Pre-COVID, she also traveled the world to DJ, is a former U.S. Junior Olympic swim coach, and has challenged many preconceived notions on what a woman in STEM looks like. Hope you enjoy this episode. Erin, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Very glad to be here. Erin and I connected through an accelerator conference we attended a few weeks ago, and on one of the many Zooms uh, we were on, Erin asked a really interesting question. I forgot what it was, and I was like, who is this? Uh, <laughs> so I ran a quick Google search on Erin and couldn't believe this accomplished former banker turned TV host pivoted to STEM and was on this call asking an incredibly complex STEM-related question. I started understanding your background and I was like, oh my gosh, you have to come on the podcast. You've accomplished so much in a variety of fields. Uh, so I'm really excited about this conversation. Thanks again for joining. Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate the adulation. Thank you. <laughs> it's always nice when you ask a question that someone thinks it's interesting. <laughs> and keep in mind there were great questions presented on that call and your particular question still stood out. So, Aaron, you have found great success in so many different facets. You're a former junior Olympic swim coach, a former banker, former TV host, you're a DJ, you're pursuing a master's in bio at Harvard, you're now an entrepreneur. I mean, the list goes on. But to our listeners, who is Aaron Cironi? You're more than just a title. Oh, wow. Who is Aaron Cironi? You know, we could go really deep on this question. It could become like a <laughs> Deepak Chopra, Eckhart Tolle kind of conversation. <laughs> um you know, I mean, I, look, I, I think I'm, 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 I'm just a person who's curious, and at my core, I'm a creative individual, and I actually think all human beings have the same potential and the same capacity to 
be creative and to learn and to grow and to change and to do all sorts of different things that enrich them and enrich the world around them. But unfortunately, not everybody does that. Um, some people don't maybe grow up with that as a model um, or they don't have the opportunity for whatever reason. Uh, some people choose not to and, and some people embrace that. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but I, I don't, I, I wouldn't say that I'm special. Maybe I'm different uh, in my how my path has unfolded because I've chosen differently but I, I think yeah at my core I'm just I'm a creative and that creativity um, and desire to understand why things are the way they are which I guess is sort of a kind of a meta question or kind of, you know you could go down a whole different road with that but um, yeah. all the things that I've, I've done have been creative, whether it's uh, the arts, which is what I grew up in, or science, which is ultimately um, an extraordinarily creative process, if I think you're engaging in it correctly, particularly in the biological sciences, which is where I work. Even business and entrepreneurship is, again, an act of creation. And the older I've gotten, <laughs> the more wise and the more experienced I've gotten, I've realized that when you're creating, it is an act of service. So not only to uh, serve your own self and bring you joy or, or create monetary gains, but um, ideally to serve others and to create things that inspire people, connect people, make the world better. Uh, we really need that now. So um, I'm, I'm happy that I've had all the experiences and the tools that I have access to thus far so that um, I, can, I can continue to create better and more meaningful things. I love that. Oh, I love that so much. You touched on this briefly. Where did you grow up and what were some of the early influences that perhaps inspired your way of thinking through creative lens? Sure. Uh, well, I was born in New York City to parents who I, I guess I always call them like hippie parents, <laughs> although they were maybe more hippies when they were younger before they right before they had me. And I think when you become a parent, sometimes it forces you to, uh, to sort of uh, narrow your range, maybe or forgo some some of the more interesting things, or at least it used to be that way back in the 80s when I was born. So, um, but they are very uh, creative people. They're very, very liberal uh, in their worldview. Um, and I, I, I credit uh, a lot of my upbringing and, and that worldview to, to what my parents taught me. Um, my dad is an immigrant. Uh, he came to the United States when, gosh, you know, I don't even know the exact year. I think he was about 16 or something um, from Israel. And his parents were refugees from Yemen. So that that's a very interesting sort of thread to, to pull on when you when you think about your your upbringing and your past and cultural influences. Um, my mom is American. Uh, she's from Seattle and ended up in New York in I think in the seventies. Um, and her and my dad met at a theology class in Queens College um, wow. in New York, and then they got together and had me. Uh, and <laughs> my dad was the kind of guy that was like handing out flyers for George McGovern, and then was like you know this super leftist radical you know. Uh, Marxist, Zen Buddhist Jew. <laughs> my mom, my mom, I think, shared a lot of the same uh, same ideas and opinions in terms of you know how we should treat others and how we needed to expand our worldview. And um, to put it in perspective, this is you know back in the eighties when I was growing up, my parents were like really hyper vigilant about what I could eat. And uh, I actually was just back in New York uh, these past couple of weeks visiting visiting them, and I was staying with my dad in the Hudson Valley in, in upstate New York. I live in Miami now. And we were joking about how him and my mom used to feed me and my sister carob, 
which is this like disgusting fake chocolate. So if anyone grew up before Whole Foods, when like you had to go to a local health food store that stunk like B vitamins and patchouli, that's what I lived in. <laughs> so uh, I always joke like, mom, all I ever wanted was a McDonald's Happy Meal because I wanted the toy and my parents would not let me eat that garbage. Um, and it's to their credit, you know, as a kid, I was really mad that I didn't have Wonder Bread and they made me eat these like horrible cookies imported from Canada called Frookies that were like sweetened with fruit juice. And they would always tell me, you can't have high fructose corn syrup. It's terrible for you. And this was in like 1986 or something. Oh, like, wow. No one was talking about that. Yeah. So this like idea of being focused on health and well-being and um, understanding the body and you know my dad was always meditating so at a very young age he was trying to get me to meditate and then growing up in New York City was really formative and and I am so grateful for that um, because I was born in Queens um, and I, I went to high school in Manhattan um, and so I lived between these two boroughs but I grew up experiencing this incredible uh, diverse multicultural cauldron you know whether it was an elementary school or my parents would take me on the weekends to classes for free at the bronx zoo and learn about the animals from different places and you know go to uh the museums um and and they fostered and nurtured my apparent artistic talent from a very very young age and both me and my sister um and so we had access to you know seeing the world from your backyard essentially most of my friends when i was growing up were not american they were immigrants so you'd go mm -hmm. over to their houses after school and you'd eat you know, Briani at the Indian kid's house. And then you'd have pierogies at your uh, Russian Polish friend's house. And, you know, it was just really, really, really interesting and diverse upbringing that I don't think I would have gotten anywhere else. Um, and then, you know, thankfully having parents and grandparents who always told me, um, you're smart, you're capable, you can be whatever you want to be, you can do whatever you want to do, never really trying to force me into any one thing that they thought was right, just, you know, mm. maybe you got to do well in school. So I guess, sorry, that was a bit of a circuitous answer, but um, no. I, I really do credit my, my upbringing with where I am today. It makes more sense now. <laughs> Your exposure to the artistic world and culture and even the sciences at a very early age and athleticism. Uh, so you are someone who is also a former U.S. Junior Olympic swim coach, which is so cool. And you must have been a very talented swimmer beginning at an early age. Was that athleticism and affinity for sports also something you had an interest in early on? I was actually more into dance um, and, and music. My parents had, my mom enrolled me in and all that stuff when I was quite young. Um, so I did like I remember I did rhythmic gymnastics when I was little, you know, the stuff I think most little kids do who have parents that are kind enough to, you know, enrich their lives after school. Um, and I, I danced, I did dance classes till I was probably from age two to 14 or something like that. Um, and swimming, I wasn't really actually very good at most sports. Like I wasn't good at team sports, but I like, I mean, I liked watching them. I grew up in New York. So you have this thing where you love the Knicks, you know, and, you know, whatever the Mets, maybe because I was a queen, but uh, I wasn't really very good at them. Um, I had really good precision, like hand-eye coordination. So had I grown up in a whiter, richer area, maybe I would have been really good at golf. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like it actually, as much as I hate to admit that playing it. Um, but swimming was, swimming was something that uh, I did also, again, from a very young age at the local YMCA, where I think my mom was actually a nursery school teacher when I was really little. I remember them throwing me in the water and being really scared. Um, but I had a natural aptitude for it. I loved the water. I loved 
love the beach. I love any manner of being in the water. Um, and I swam on the swim team in high school. I wasn't particularly good, but you know, I tried, made myself better. I definitely was not like a natural born athlete. I'm a natural born artist, maybe dancer, but definitely not an athlete. Um, and then after I graduated from college, uh, like most kids, uh, I didn't have a job. I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do. You know, I had this art degree from this liberal school. Like I really wasn't quite sure. And um, I ended up, uh, I used to swim at my local Y every day, just do laps. And there was a a swim coach at the Y um, who was a former, I think she was a former Soviet Olympian. She swam in like Moscow Olympics or something. And she grabbed my arm as I got to the end of the lane one day and was like, you, you swim on my team. (laughs) I was like, "Uh, I'm 22. I can't do that. And so she actually asked if I wanted to, if I had a job and if I wanted to be the assistant swim coach with her. And so that's literally how I, how I got into that. I did that just for a season or two after college, but I was junior Olympic certified because the team was somehow in that sort of bracket. They're pretty good. Um, So yeah, that's, that's how that happened. Wow. Okay. Networking at its finest in the swim pool. Yeah. So there's a lot of pressure to feel like you have to figure it all out at a, a young age, and that's certainly a common thread that we'll be discussing throughout this this uh, episode. When you graduated from Wesleyan, do you feel like there was a lot of pressure into feeling like you had to go down this more traditional route or feel like you had to have it, quote, all figured out? You had to know what your plans were for pretty much the rest of your, your professional life? Or, or were you someone who, given your upbringing of this more hippie uh, vibe, that you're someone who was able to block that noise out? You know, not, a, not at all. I, I never felt that. In fact, maybe, I mean, maybe it's worked out for me, but maybe a bit to my detriment. Um, I, I, anyone who knows Wesleyan University probably is sitting there laughing, thinking about this because it's like the ultimate liberal, liberal arts school, right? So, you know, very intelligent place, really smart kids, really good teachers, but definitely not a place uh, for conformity or that, you know, locks you into any box. In fact, I think maybe uh, this is just my personal opinion, maybe too much to one extreme. Um, So it's Mm -hmm. not good to confine people to one lane, but it's also you know, it, it, it can be difficult for some people, um, I think, to have absolutely no direction and feel like, wow, I've, you know, that's the, the essence of a liberal arts education, right? It's, it's, it's pretty unfocused, which has its merits. I probably could have you done well with, with a little bit more direction, but I never felt any pressure from my parents. I mean, you know, they wanted me, of course, to have a job, you know, they're not crazy. Um, <laughs> but They wanted it to be something, you know, something that I enjoyed that was enriching. And so I never felt that from 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 them. I certainly felt a pressure to like need to make some money so I could be self sufficient and force their loans you have to pay back. But I was pretty confused. I think I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I actually considered doing a, a postgrad year um, to go pre med because I always wow. loved uh, science and I love the body. I was an, uh, an artist, a visual artist. I went to specialized arts high school. And my favorite thing to do was to draw the human nude form. And then I did a lot of study of anatomy. Um, I would draw the musculature. I uh, like those old drawings that you see of the, the old masters that would study these cadavers. And so that was my thing. It was always the human form. Even when I did sculpture, you know, it was, it was a human form. And, and so that was, that was something I was always very interested in. Um, and I, I still, obviously, I'm focused on healing and health uh, now. And so I wanted to go to med school and I really wanted to be an obstetrician because I thought, what's the one, what's the one like 
profession as an MD or, or sort of uh, you know bucket as an MD where you're always bringing joy to people. And in my naive state, I thought, well, it's certainly it's birthing. Like who who's not really delighted to have a baby, right? <laughs> and, and I had actually, in my undergrad years at Wesleyan, I remember there was um, a doula course and I had, I had done this separate from school. Uh, it was like local or something. I, I gotten involved, if anyone doesn't know what a doula is, it's like a midwife. So I was starting to learn midwifery. Um, I was really interested in that. Um, I also was extremely active in women's reproductive rights and, 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 and healthcare. I, I volunteered as an escort uh, at uh, an abortion clinic in a very, very difficult or rough part of Connecticut um, when there was a lot of low-income uh, women who needed help. Um, so I felt really strongly about all, all of that, um, about about reproductive health and, and birth and making sure that, you know, um, it was being done in a way that was healthy for, for everyone involved. Um, and so I wanted to do that. And I actually looked into doing a postgrad year at actually through Harvard Extension School. Um, they were offering, you know, like the chem classes that I needed that I hadn't taken in my undergrad. And I went and talked to mom and I was going to do that. And then I spoke to a family friend who was my doctor at the time, who is the head of a very big hospital in New York. And he convinced me not to do it. He was like, don't do it. Your insurance is going to be $300,000 a year. You don't want to be an OB. All the OBGYNs I know just drop the OB and become a GYN. And I was like, well, I don't really want to stare at vaginas all day, like not delivering babies. That just wasn't something that I was interested in. And so he scared me out of it, really. And, you know, maybe that was meant to be because I've done so much more than I, I would have been able to do. If I was only pursuing medicine. Um, I have some regrets that I really kind of wish I was a doctor. I think I really would have liked it. But I didn't. I didn't pursue that. Um, and so that sort of changed the trajectory of everything. But sorry, to answer your question, no, I never really felt pressured to choose one thing. I just felt really confused and a bit directionless. And mm. as a person who's a creative, who had a lot of aptitude for a lot of different things, and I think this is problematic for a lot of, you know, very curious creative people, you don't know where to throw your hat in the ring. You're not really quite sure. And this was before the days of, you know, social media that just started like right after I got out of college. So they're really, I don't know, it was, it was a different sort of time to try and figure yourself out. And there was, I didn't feel that pressure. Mm. Um, if anything, it was maybe self-imposed. What I also find very interesting is your ability to draw connections in this intersection between the arts and the sciences. And I think that is often something that's perhaps misconstrued or even counterintuitive to a lot of people where they feel it's completely different. There's very little layover. In your eyes, why do you think few people draw connections between these varying disciplines? And in your opinion, what is the degree of layover between the arts and the sciences? Well, in my mind, science is an art. Um, if it's not, then you're not doing it correctly. And if you think about the greatest inventors and the greatest scientists of all time that we laud, you know, um, think of Da Vinci and what he gave us. I mean, people, man, most people don't even realize the extent of what this guy did and mm. thought about and drew and communicated um, and how important that was at that time. And here is a person who was just as fascinated with creating essentially model airplanes, figuring out how humans could fly, which is scientific and engineering, right? as he was with, you know, fine art and, and drawing the human form and, and all that sort of stuff. So, so I, I would say, and, and even if you don't consider some of the traditional artists, but, you know, think about um, scientists who've contributed the most. These people were not separate 
from the arts. Mm. There, there's a lot of there's a lot of art in science because science is not a sure thing, and it's some, that's actually something that bothers me a lot today. Yeah. Is that science science is wielded dogmatically, almost as dogmatically as religion, and it always strikes me as hypocritical and kind of funny that people don't realize they're doing that when they say, "Well, this is what it is, and this is what science says, and therefore you're wrong." And, you know, we can't explore anything else outside this paradigm. Well, that's insane because mm. science evolves, our understanding evolves, right? Which is an art in and of itself. Um, if you're not asking why and you're not constantly testing your hypotheses and you're not constantly open to exploring and accepting the idea that we as humans know a drop in the ocean of what actually is possible. I mean, my God, we, there's so much we don't know still, especially in the realm of biology. Forget it. It's the least understood science. Um, comparatively. So if you're not thinking holistically and creatively and not drawing new connections and not looking at other disciplines and not integrating and involving and refining, then I think you become stuck and stagnant and you don't really contribute very much. I mean, humans were convinced for a very long time that the earth was flat and that mm -hmm. uh, the, the, our planet was the center of the solar system. And of course, now we would all laugh at anyone who, we do laugh at the flat earthers, right? I mean, <laughs> we laugh at anyone who says otherwise, but, but really like people need to get some perspective and think about it. it. It takes a creative and daring person to go against the grain and to, you know, I mean, to risk their reputation, which is what a lot of these scientists did. They risked their reputation. They weren't all Einsteins. Even Einstein was ridiculed in the beginning, right? Until it became right. famous. You know, some of them were locked up and called heretics and burned at the stake. So we don't burn people at the stake like physically anymore, but we do it figuratively. We do it with social media. If anyone says anything that goes outside of this, you know, this narrow little paradigm. Have we learned a lot more than we knew in the past few hundred years? Of course, but can't anyone imagine that in a hundred years, people will look back at us now and laugh at how mm -hmm. archaic and cruel a lot of our approaches are? I think so. And I think that people who are artists, whether they physically talented at painting something or, or whether they're a poet or a writer or someone who sees the greater possibility than, than what is sitting right in front of them, which ultimately I think is the essence of what it means to be a creative or an artist, that they're going to be more successful in the realm of science. I think the two are inextricably linked. That's why we have STEAM now, right? Science, mm -hmm. technology, engineering, art, and mathematics. I think that is something that needs to be taught at all levels. I don't think we're going to get anywhere as a species, we need a real rapid innovation right now. I mean, we can talk about that separately, but man, I think if this pandemic has shown us anything, I hope it's a wake up call. We got a, a lot to fix and we're not gonna fix it if we're not creative and we're not open. And that's, that's where the art comes in. Wow, there's so much to unpack by what you just said. Yes to all of that. So you are a DJ. And you have an interest in a lot of facets of art as well, um, different types of arts. Do you think that has contributed to innovative thinking, your innovative approach in your interest in science? And also, I'm sure people are curious, what is that like to be this DJ who gets to travel and been put on hold, unfortunately, due to this pandemic, but pre-COVID? Yeah. <laughs> well, my, my passion for music was cultivated at a very young age and um, specifically dance music. Once I, once I was a young teenager and heard my first bit of that music and went to my first underground rave, I was hooked. Um, that was it. I like, I like 
many, many types of music. And I used to play the clarinet and I love jazz. It's what I grew up with my dad, but dance music is my thing. I love it very much. I'll, I'll always be something I'm involved in, I think. Um, I started DJing just for fun way back in, in undergrad when I was like 18. Um, I actually have like real Technics 1200s turntables in my closet because <laughs> that's what I got when I was a kid back then. Um, and now, of course, everyone uses CDJs. But, but yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it's not like I'm a DJ for my my career career. Um, it's something I've been fortunate enough to be able to do because I love it. I, I, I didn't really try to make a, a, a sole career out of it, but I'm friends, of course, with many, many people who, who have done so really quite successfully. Um, and it's a really interesting, awesome world. I think it's a very difficult, challenging life to live. And so the people that are successful, I really take my hat off to them. Um, but yeah, uh, without going into the whole long story, I, I was the deputy editor of DJ Mag uh, North America. So DJ Mag is the biggest, most widely distributed electronic dance music publication in the world. And they're based in the UK and distribute the UK magazine throughout the UK and Europe. And then they developed a, an American outpost because obviously the rise of electronic dance music started happening in a big way here in the last five to 10 years. So about five or six years ago, I connected with their then editor uh, and she hired me on as a deputy editor. And I was doing that just as a part-time job. Although it was really quite full-time, but I was, I was working two jobs. <laughs> so I had my day job and then I was doing that, uh, writing and traveling and you know attending festivals, talking to other artists. And so that sort of reignited my connection to that scene that I had lost a little bit mm. along the way. And, and from there, then I was able to start playing gigs again for fun. And yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's something that's really devastating about this pandemic is that that entire industry oh. has been decimated. All the people who worked so hard, whose lives are built around that have nothing right now. And I don't know when it's going to get back to normal. So that is really sad, but mm. yeah, it's awesome. I love it. And I think that if people have a passion for something that really um, inspires them, they should try and pursue it. So. Do you think that's contributed to your interest in science as well or, or shaped your perspective and how you're approaching some of your research? No, I mean, well, I'm certainly interested in, in, in how music affects us and music therapy and stuff like that. So I guess maybe that's like tangentially uh, connected. I'm not sure it's connected directly, although music inspires me. So often I'll be, you know, walking my dog or working out, listening to some music that really gets me going. And then I'll have sort of a, a breakthrough idea about whatever scientific problem I'm working on uh, for work or for my thesis or, or something like that. So I guess in that way, it's connected. I mean, that's a whole other discussion, right? It's how yes. music and art can mediate the creative process. Thanks so much for listening to part one of our Aaron Sharoni interview. Stay tuned for the release of part two. 